Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side, Chief. We was coming back from the island of Tinian to Leyte. We just delivered the bomb. The Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. Vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about a half hour. A tiger. Thirteen footer. You know how you know that in the water, Chief? You can tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was that our bomb mission was so secret. No distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief, sharks come cruising by. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. It was sort of like you see in the calendars. You, you know, the infantry squares in the old calendars like the Battle of Waterloo. And the idea was the shark come to the nearest man, that man he starts pounding and hollering. And sometimes that shark he go away. But sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark looks right at you. Right into your eyes. The thing about a shark is he's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes. Like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't even seem to be living. Till he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Ah, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all your pounding and your hollering, those sharks come in and... rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks there were, maybe a thousand. I do know how many men. They average six an hour. Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland, a baseball player, bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. I reached over to wake him up. He bobbed up down in the water. He was like a kind of top, upended. He'd been bitten in half below the waist. On noon on the fifth day, a Lockheed Ventura swung in low and he spotted us. A young pilot. A lot younger than Mr. Hooper here. Anyway, he spotted us and a few hours later, a big old fat PBY came down and started to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was the most frightened. Waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So 1,100 men went into the water. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest. June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's a glorified postal service delivering three packages with no protection. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I took a drink of coffee right at the wrong moment there. <laughs> ben made me laugh. <laughs> um, there's no reason this movie had to be as bad as it was. Right? <sighs> Agreed. It, it, it had a lot of the ingredients of a good movie. Yeah, if you looked at the palette of ingredients as it was sitting on the loading dock in, in <laughs> uh, advance of this movie getting made, and you go down the, go down the packing list and say, like, yep, it's got 
Tom Sizemore. It's got digital special effects. <laughs> it's, well, got, it's got the peebs. It's got like uh, digital special effects rendered on a PlayStation 3. <laughs> it's got, uh, you know, it's got a true story about World War II, the greatest of all. We don't like to compare these films to each other, specifically. We say it every episode. But one way that I think... It's mostly you that says that. We could <laughs> compare this film to the others is its budget. $40 million was its budget. Is that a big one? Letters from Iwo Jima was 20 Whoa! What did they spend that money on? I don't know. Oh, you know what they spent it on? Too many fucking stories. You know what they didn't spend it on? Uh, A half of a body bobbing in the water after being. Where was the half bob? That's the greatest part of this whole story. That's the only reason I finished the film. Uh, You were like, I'm going to see a half bob. Right? (laughs) The guy, you you reach out to your friend and then he tips over. And they sort of do it up front, like Nick Cage is sort of isolated on his own oh, with I one know. other dude, and he's not moving. I was waiting for the half bob. I thought too. for sure that was the half bob. That was going to be it. And that was a weird scene, because he just touches the kid over and over, and the yeah. kid is like, died. And uh, But he also doesn't like, you know, put his fingers to his nope. you know, neck to yeah. check for a pulse or any, like he doesn't hold a mirror up to his nose. That kid could have been sleeping. Yeah. That happened a lot in this movie. A lot of people died and no one ever checked to see if they were dead. Like a lot of people could have just been sleeping and Yeah. And yeah push that guy out of the raft. Let the sharks the get him. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was so frustrating to see a lack of detail in some areas and some really interesting detail in others. Give me an example of interesting detail. Um when the Indianapolis was post-torpedo and was going down. Things that I had never seen in a World War II movie were stuff like uh, the heat in the floor. Yeah. I had never seen that before, and I thought that was a great detail. The heat in the doors Well, right, that, were, but, that was burning people. But that heat in the doors, you know, uh, that was a kind of a crucial scene, or it comes up later, where mm-hmm. the guy reaches out, grabs the handle, and it burns his hands. Yeah. And the other, then his pal grabs the life preserver and uses it to open the yeah the wheel but on the other side there was no fire yeah they opened the door and they yeah couldn't it have been radiating from below like the floor not enough for the not enough for that wheel to have seared that guy's hands yeah i mean if you touch a thing like that and it's too hot to touch that means don't open that door right because there's a big fire on the other side so that was a very weird detail the moment the orders are thrown overboard and some people around that situation realize it and they're like oh shit this is real we're actually abandoning ship that was another great moment that had its dialogue turned so down and it was so small in the frame that you barely even saw it happen like i love that moment i missed it i missed it completely like it was so incidental to the greater destruction that was happening around that like What made watching this movie so aggravating is that it intended to be this detailed and then it totally forgets what it is. Yeah. 40 minutes into the film, as soon as it turns into a shark attack movie, it doesn't care about those details anymore. Even just the the ship sinking sequence is 
like you get the bends seeing like one special effect that is actually super effective and then another where it, they like digitally comped some flame onto a guy's arm. Oh, that was know? so infuriating. How <laughs> like, many people were burning in that first? Uh, there, there was like three minutes there where every person you saw on the screen was on right, fire. And, <laughs> and some of them, they actually lit stunt people on fire and had them flail around and others, they just like got like they like downloaded a flame comp <laughs> off of youtube and put it on using video toaster this guy isn't my guy but there was a guy uh staggering around on fire in a part of the ship that had been flooded like if only he were to fall backwards into the water he would put himself out come on man <laughs> well for me the first 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the film we were introduced to so many characters who were given so much, so many different individual and yet ultimately unimportant little stories. There was the nominal hero and his, his best friend from New York who fell in love with his girl. There was the wedding ring. There was the inveterate gambler. There were, there was the black boxer and his pals. There were, um, there was, I mean, help me out here. There, uh, there was the commander of the ship. There was the uh, junior officer whose father was an admiral who was a tight ass. Mm-hmm. There the was bad the, men in Washington who right, make right. deals in smoke-filled rooms. Right. There was the chief of the boat who was beloved but crusty. Mm-hmm. There, <laughs> I mean, every single person that we were going to see on screen later, we were given a minute and a half of their story. And it was but just also like... like they're all like such they're so tropey that the movie doesn't even bother really get characterizing them all because it's it's like hey you know this type of guy right okay moving right. on oh you know? there was the black kid that was writing in writing his stories in his journal yeah that for a while was given voiceover uh status where i was like wait a minute are we do we have a narrator now like we've been <laughs> this in this movie, movie 15 minutes is there a narrator <laughs> is it this guy who's gonna walk us through the girl in the red dress and the and then he disappears. It made me wonder if the screenwriters for this film really liked Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. There's a lot of Pearl Harbor in this movie. Yeah. Which is tragic because like part of the story, part of the myth of this film is that no one has ever made a movie about the Indian- Indianapolis before. Like this is a film that had the balls to tell this story. And the real story is so amazing so terrifying so intense that it deserves to be told it deserves to have a 40 million dollar budget it deserves the hollywood treatment and you can see all of the elements of that in this right like yeah. like all of their all of the story beats are there it's just that the film somehow fails to make you feel anything about them yeah i thought about it a lot how do you make the uss indianapolis movie and unwrap it in a different way and put things to work in a different way so that you spend the majority of the movie in the water with them and you feel the you feel how harrowing it was you feel their betrayal like how do you how do you make this movie where you walk out of it and are like forever and profoundly changed the best movie about the USS Indianapolis is jaws mm-hmm. which has one 10 minute long scene where quint describes the whole the whole thing he has the man bobbing in the water he has half bob and it's the 
it's one of the most <laughs> it's one of the most affecting scenes in jaws it's one of the 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 pinnacles of 70s cinema yeah and it's just one guy telling a story and it, it was the thing that introduced the world to the uss indianapolis nobody knew about it really before right. that or it wasn't in the popular consciousness and so there's your movie right yeah, I'd say one issue is that nobody is rising to Robert Shaw levels of pathos in this movie. Like, it really feels like a paycheck for Nick Cage and and Tom Sizemore. They're not they're not putting their all into this. Let me. Tell I disagree you. with you on that. I think the failure of this film is not at the feet of Nicolas Cage. I grieved for his involvement here. I don't know what Thomas Jane did to get thrown in in movie jail like he was in this film, like introduced <laughs> an hour and a half in and then given his six pages, like he is the most thankful part in the film. Like, Wait, so you're saying it's Thomas Jane's fault? Jeez, dude. No, I'm not. Thomas Jane like is one of my favorite actors and I couldn't believe that he wasn't in this film. When Thomas Jane appears on the screen, your eye is immediately drawn to him and you do not want to let go of him. Yeah. And then he's gone again. I want him to save me and the PBY Catalina from watching this film. Yeah. This is one of those examples in the Friendly Fire canon where Ben and I are going to gang up on you, Adam. Do it. And we're going to tell you that you're wrong and you're going to be sad. But Nicholas Cage... 25 one-star <laughs> reviews on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Nicholas Cage is a floating turd in this movie uh. that cannot be flushed down. <laughs> <laughs> He's, really? yeah, you're, you're so going to have to get the plunger involved. He's so bad. He really is bad. But, I mean, don't you blame the screenwriter here? <laughs> I can't blame the peebs because I'm, I'm a fan of the peebs. I love New Jack City. Yeah. But, uh, no, I can blame the peebs. But also, no, Nick's just, he's phoning it in so hard. It's such a phone in. I'm just reluctant to to take that tack like, with him like, like sizemore is strutting around he's this is and this is post like celebrity rehab sizemore he should be ashamed of himself he should be hiding in a cabin i would i would agree with you if it didn't actually look this hard to make this film like these actors are wet all the time they are miserable like the production of this film looked extremely difficult i'm wet all the time i'm miserable <laughs> <laughs> and yet you bring it I episode bring it after episode every time i think nicholas cage brought as much intensity to this performance as he did to posing for the photo on the cover of Ooh. the box Ouch. one of the terrible movie posters slash box covers ever okay i will give you nick cage in the water when he's on the raft, after the boat goes down, there are some moments where yeah. he's genuinely acting and it's genuinely, he's the guy for the role at that point. It's yeah. a good thing. But the whole, him him being a, a Navy officer just isn't, it's just bad casting. I don't buy him as the commander of this boat. I don't buy him as a man of honor. I just don't, <laughs> I just don't, I, you know, I keep looking at him and I just see Valley Girl. I feel like if you swap Nick Cage and Thomas Jane. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I think this film is 40% better. There's the movie. Thomas Jane should have been. That's exactly who should have been driving that boat. Yeah. I'm going to get so many letters about calling it a boat too. Is Nicolas Cage where all the money went? Do you think? Did he get $40 million for this movie? Cause I don't know where any of the other money went. I had a hard time finding production details like and development details for this film that go in that direction. 
it is not uncommon for a movie like this to have half of its budget go to the above the line people, yeah. which means like director, lead actor. But I, I almost feel like Nicolas Cage is stunt casting in this. He went through that phase where he, where we were all asked to believe that he was a leading man adventure movie guy, right? He opened a lot of big movies where he was, I don't know what, swinging on ropes, shooting guns. Yeah. National Treasure movies. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Con Air. Put the bunny back in the box. You're The Rock. It's because I'm a Beatlemaniac. He's been that guy for a long time. But his whole character in those movies is there's always something wry about him. There's always, he's got, he's, there's a sardonic element to him. He's not just like a stuffed uniform standing up there going, abandon ship or whatever. You know, like he's just some really boring version of a officer of a, of a boat right yeah. I just i didn't you could have put a lot of people in there you could have put r lee emery or whatever did i get that name right ermy 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 r lee ermy in there um pretending to be that guy and you would have had more veritas yeah this is one of i think five or six film credits he had in 2016 2017 similar number 2018 similar number there's these weird choices that he's making uh late in his career due to some kind of tax issue i i believe <laughs> I, th I think he bought like uh he i think he just spent all his money basically like he bought like a castle and, and a yeah. dinosaur skeleton and and now is basically just saying yes to anybody that will that will pay Ben, but, Adam is getting that look on his face where we're piling on him. Well, he, like Wesley Snipes has tax issues too, but you don't see him doing 60 films a year. Well, I'm just saying like, and, and like, these are films that you have not heard of. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have the, are, Adam, are you making the piling on face or are you making the sad for Nicolas Cage face? I do sincerely grieve for the career of Nicolas Cage. A, you celebrate his entire catalog. No, you can't. You can't, but like you look at the first 15 years of his career and it's and it's banger after banger. Like he chose interesting projects that he was good in. And I wonder if he will never get a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Academy Awards because of what's happened in in the back quarter of his career. It's just too bad, you know? Tarantino needs to cast him as an aging mobster. <laughs> in a comeback film he does seem like he's ripe for resuscitation like with the right role and the right caretaker uh, he could totally find redemption in his career i hope it happens me too i really wish i could convey all the emotion on adam's face which is normally emotionless <laughs> he sits and ruminates on the decline and fall of nick cage is but Adam let's dying. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. Let's bounce <laughs> off of that dangling. I love. I love that my showing emotion is 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 giving you great concern over my health and well being. <laughs> well, I also want to communicate to our podcast audience, you know how how multiplicitous uh, you are in person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very very Michael Keatony. No clone, Nookie. <laughs> Uh, but Nicolas Cage is not the only bad thing about this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let us count the ways. 
I like that opening scene with the uh, with the two sailor boys heading out to the kudzu drenched plantation in Napa Valley, California. <laughs> yeah, that was the other thing. Where did that plantation come from? That the where did that dad's accent come from? And it's in Napa. <laughs> and also, so the New York kids. So here's here's trope number one. Right, we're 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 th- three minutes into the film, and we're just in a trope salad. But New Yorker kid is uh is like supposedly or he's supposed to be offending all the people the west coast people with his like rough and tumble brooklyn ways you're yeah. talking about d'antonio d'antonio yeah mr d'antonio we have a more particular set of manners here in the northern regions of california <laughs> but what was what was crazy and i saw this throughout the film and maybe um, maybe this would uh, escape you guys a little bit being that you're much younger and uh, you grew up in a time when everybody kind of talked this way, but his patois, his Brooklyn, so, so f- uh, called Brooklyn patois was really like Brooklyn in 92, you know, like no, no one in 1944 was like, yo, Mm-hmm. No one ever said, yo, my dog mm-hmm. yeah. in 1944. And this guy kind of, and this happens a lot in this movie. And I'd, I couldn't tell whether it was something about the production where on the set, these young actors kind of got in the habit of talking to one another like, yo, dog. But I heard it a lot in the movie where people were kind of trying to be street and they gave it, they were trying to be like like blue collar sailors of the time, but they did not get how people talked. And they introduced, there's just a lot of, I mean, you know, in this movie, there are just people saying like, what man, hey, you know, yo man, you can't talk to me like that. And it's just like, nobody said yo man in 1944. It is so interesting where this movie obviously did its homework very well and where it failed to do its homework. Yeah, the uniforms were good. Mostly, except Nicolas Cage's stupid Ray-Bans that sat way up on top of his nose. <laughs> I wanted to knock those stupid sunglasses off his face so many times. I like those glasses. I was like, get those out of here. That's not how this is, this would have happened. Guy doesn't walk around in his sunglasses those all day. Those aren't canonical Ray-Bans? Not at the time. Hmm. Those are Ray-Bans that he got at a kiosk in the mall. Hmm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't check to see if they actually say Ray-Ban on them, but I wouldn't be surprised. It looked like they comped out the frames in uh, in Thomas Jane's glasses while he's flying the PBY. That's some like the effects work. I think we could spend an entire show talking about, but the inability of the effects work to rise to the occasion is strange in a couple of areas, and one of them is like comping out lenses and glasses. Let me tell, let's talk about this, the USS Indianapolis setting sail under the Golden Gate Bridge, looking at the same moment, both like a cheap model in a bathtub and also like a bad digital creation, like on a, a Mac G3. How, <laughs> how did they make it look both like a bad model mm. and bad digital effects? This is a shot that exists in uh, the documentary about this mission. Uh, like, I don't want to spend too much time talking about all the other movies that one should watch about this mission instead of this. But like, that was a shot directly pulled from the dock. And I don't know if it was the Indianapolis or another heavy cruiser that's depicted cruising under the bridge, but like 
The shot exists. You could colorize it or or use it as is. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, in the film and and have a better effect, I think. But it's but it also looked in addition to looking chintzy, it also looked expensive. You remember the shot where they're repairing the Indianapolis and you're looking up like I I think we all noticed this, but the way that they block a bunch of these scenes is intentional so as not to reveal the rest of the the museum ship that they're shooting on. Right. But they shoot up on an establishing shot where Tom Sizemore is like barking at the guys to to repair the ship faster and zooming I think, I think during that scene he actually says yo yo bro zooming from around <laughs> the frame is a fighter jet and it is coming down at the camera and if it were real would be impossible not to go under the waterline did they build a giant set because there are several scenes that don't look like they were filmed on the USS Indianapolis during the sinking of the boat because the the deck is tilted and it looks like they built a, a like a set as big as an apartment building. All those yeah. gimbals from Titanic still exist and I wonder uh, if they were used for this production. I don't know. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. Well, so are we bagging on this movie 100%? What did you like about it? I mean, I think it's an amazing story. I think that it's... They don't get story like, credit on this. Yeah. This I mean, I, I I think that that's... Fucking that's fair. what I'm going to say is like, I I felt like this movie made me want to learn more about what actually happened. And so, you know, I then went and read about it. Um, and I thought it, it was a, a fairly interesting structure of for the story like the the idea that this uh this winds up you know being about the captain and and the and the you know captain of the japanese sub having this this interesting interaction after the trial that where they both express their regrets and also you know like that they were both following their duty as members of their military um is this scene included in your excoriation of Nicolas Cage and his acting work in this film? Because I thought it was great. I thought it was like a, probably the the best acted scene in the movie. It's it's pretty intense, but 
it feels a little unearned, you know? Mm. What the movie didn't get and made, and spent no time trying to communicate to us was how badly the Navy failed the Indianapolis. We get this one guy that, that receives some SOS calls and he makes a bad call to his radio man a couple of times. And he's a proxy for the Navy, right? He's like, we can't go out there. There might be some Japanese subs. But there was a huge clusterfuck of bad um, decisions surrounding how to respond to the Indianapolis disappearing. And it was, you know, some of it wasn't anybody's fault. Some of it was definitely negligence on the part of people. And it would have contextualized the trial of McVeigh at the end because we're, we're given the sense that he's a scapegoat in the movie. We're given right. the sense that he's being treated unjustly. But we, but that little scene with the smoke-filled room dudes where they're like, what? We lost all those men? Well, somebody's got to pay for this. We, we, we didn't get cutaway scenes to all the people who were who should have been sounding the alarm about the missing boat who were like, well, we weren't it, he, the Indianapolis was not on the manifest of boats that were supposed to arrive today because it's on a secret mission. Now it's not on the mission anymore. It's, but if we show it arriving, it's going to indicate the mission somehow. Right. So since it's, since it didn't arrive, but it wasn't supposed to arrive, it's not missing. Now, somebody should have had eyes on this boat in the Navy. Um, now, this is a big part of the plot. Yeah. And I was watching this movie with a friend, and a couple of times she was like, so why aren't they rescuing them now? <laughs> and I was like, ah, well, it's a big, it's a long story. And she's like, but I mean, why? I don't understand why they're just not, why they didn't send a rescue boat. Give me 20 minutes of that conflict sprinkled around and totally exhume the love triangle from this story. Right. It's a 40, it's a 40% better movie. If we have that and we lose the ripped from Pearl Harbor, yeah. two super handsome Navy boys in love with the same girl story, Yeah, which yeah. adds, what does that add? I mean, it's just, well, it's like a little disinterested with that story. Anyways, also. I can't figure out if they love that part of of Pearl Harbor or never saw Pearl Harbor and accidentally tripped and fell into that story. It has to. It, <laughs> he has to have seen Pearl Harbor yeah. and and just how do you steal that which was the worst part of Pearl Harbor? How do you take that out of Pearl Harbor, which was the part that made that movie the most boring, and say that's what I'm gonna, that's the hook I'm gonna hang this movie on. Yeah, how does how does that inspire you creatively? What we should do is remake RoboCop. Okay. Except with that love triangle story in the middle of RoboCop. <laughs> you can't improve RoboCop. I, I think there's that Hollywood logic though that like you have to have a love interest or 1200 sailors die, but we're wondering what's going on with the rich girl in the red dress who's got two underwear models in love with her can't put the half bob in the movie too gross <laughs> i mean yeah like thinking about like re re-sequencing that that middle section i mean the other complaint i have about it is that there's no like rising tension or sense of fear a- among the men as what they're going through becomes increasingly lethal like the sharks come and like snatch a guy under from time to time but like the fear and tension of that always dissipates it it never builds so 
redoing it so that that is building the entire time, you're getting more and more terrified while also cutting away to, you know, whatever the situation is that is preventing the Navy from dispatching rescue craft with all deliberate speed would be a much more interesting middle act for this film. I mean, 880 people died in the water. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. 300 of them died when the ship got hit. Like, right. so there could have been a lot of uh, men trapped below decks with the water going over their heads tropes. Kind of got left out in favor of the two dudes in jail. Yeah, there's no Steve were... Zahn in this movie, is there? No, there's not. Mm. But the two dudes in jail who are way down in the in the bilge and then the boat breaks in half and so somehow they're freed underwater, but not, <laughs> but not pulled down by the, by the vortex of the boat going down. They're just like, it's just like the egg cracks and they're, and they're swimming. That was incredible. I really wanted a hydrologist sitting next to me that I could have <laughs> leaned over and said, is that possible? Cause that have happened. Wouldn't they have been torn apart by the stress of the water or something? Rush Probably the just, first movie you've watched for Friendly Fire where you didn't have a hydrologist sitting. Well, yeah, that's right. Normally. Well, I stopped dating her. She she broke up with me. She's super mad about me always interrupting movies going, is that possible? <laughs> but yeah. You were the, too self-conscious about your fluid states whenever you were together. Well, she was like, why are you always wet and always miserable? God, you don't have to do that for me. I But the Robert Shaw monologue in Jaws communicates... So effectively, the feeling of being in the water and little by little you're being, it's a war of attrition against the sharks. Yeah. And we see the first shark strike almost immediately after they're in the water. And then, like you say, Ben, it's just a kind of, it's introduced as a random element. Every once in a while, somebody gets killed by a shark, but. Oh, go barf over the side of the life raft. Whoop, shark. Oh my it's God. Like, those, they're always those, jump scares. Those you know? fake sharks with the jump scares. Although I liked the robot shark that swam yeah. by in the water. That was amazing. <laughs> Wasn't it? it? Didn't it look like a shark? It for looked the perfect and terrifying. Yeah. For the longest time, the sharks in the water, I was like, did they get real sharks for this? That seems like they a pretty like scary trained shot. sharks. <laughs> yeah. They seemed like trained sharks. So those were great robot sharks. Yeah. But then the shark coming out of the water in the jump scare, those sharks were awful sharks. Yeah. Those were uh, 16-bit Sega Genesis sharks. <laughs> One of the great parts of Robert Shaw's monologue is the end of it, when he says the part that he was the most scared was after the PBY landed. He was waiting his turn. That's when he was the most scared. But that moment in this film focuses entirely on the Thomas Jane character and not on anyone in the water, except for... Nick Cage's awesome line reading of thank you for landing. Oh my God. I rewound that like five times. He's, he's like sarcastic. Nick Cage is like, thank you for landing. But like, there's so much pregnancy that is unrealized in that moment after, after the plane comes down and they start loading people up. That is the time that should be the most fraught. Like you're saved maybe yeah but you're still in the water in the in the context of this film you are saved the the stress is over as soon as that plane lands yeah but that's not how it was and not all the sailors could get on that airplane yeah, yeah that was like 
I think it was 60 guys that they got on that plane. Can you imagine? And yeah, floating, watching those guys up on the on, up on the wing, and you're, they're like, "Well, we're full up here. You, all, yeah. you guys will just have to wait." And like they were in the water like all night. Yeah, the, like the, uh. they had to wait it out while they got individually picked up by boats. All ahead, best speed. We didn't cover the fact really. It was kind of implied in the fact that these guys looked more and more sunburned. But the fact, one of the major factors in their survival or lack thereof was that they were baking uncovered in the South Pacific sun yeah. they for should be four chapped. straight days. They should be chapped and ugly. Yeah, yeah. And Burnt. they weren't willing to be uglied in this film. Now, as a, as a, maybe the saddest thing about this film, when that PBY comes in, I was astonished that it was a real PBY that was really landing on the open ocean, which they say in the movie, like, don't yeah. land that boat on the open ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, they're, that's a real airplane. Like, every everything else in this movie is crap digital, and they got a real PBY? And I watched that guy land it on the ocean, and I was that was the most harrowing scene. Yeah. Like, they're really gonna land that plane on just like choppy seas? And but you kn- did. knew not to cut away from that too, because it was oh, amazing. It was so gorgeous yeah. putting that airplane down. And I don't know if you guys know this, but they lost that plane in the making of this film. Mm. Whoa. It, it, they landed it, it started taking on water. They fucked it up somehow and they tried to save it. They cut, they, st- you know, stopped everything. They couldn't save the plane and it broke up and. There aren't that many of those left. Yeah. Guy they rented up from must have been fucking pissed. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Well, and it's fr- it was from Washington. Yeah. That was such a great landing, too. Like, in open ocean, not to catch a wingtip pontoon so ever. Beautiful. Like He puts it down, and then totally it bounces it. and yeah. bounces, and you're just like, no, he's landing in, like, like sea. Yeah. Yeah. Waves, choppy. Oh, such a nice, nice landing. One of the great planes. Best thing about the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Mario Van Peebles, in the making of this movie, I was really struck by the fact that he is part of that generation that I've referred to a few times on this show, that it was trying to convey the black experience in films that normally wouldn't have um, very much context there right any other director any of your normal world war ii directors would not have focused so much on the experience of um what you know what would have been like the orderly staff right the uh the kitchen staff of the boat who had their own distinctive uh culture within themselves in the navy that was that was dealing with a lot of antagonism and so we got to see a side of the of that experience that you wouldn't see otherwise. But Van Peebles also is part of a, of a school that believes in post-racial America, right? He wanted everyone to get along. He resolved a lot of that. What would have been intrinsic racial conflict between these guys. He made everyone, you know, it was a, it was colorblind by the end. They were all the survivors to be partying together. Yeah felt anachronistic well who knows i don't know what the real i don't know whether the experience of the indianapolis brought everyone so so together that they um that all those southern boys all those southern boys from napa (laughs) (laughs) 
but but all like here the, in Marin County, we subscribe to a segregationist <laughs> attitude. Which <laughs> <laughs> is actually kind of true of Marin County, but uh, for sure, for sure. I read that the uh, the courtroom would have been segregated. They wouldn't have been allowed to sit together in the courtroom. Right. Interesting. But you know the the all, all the black sailors from Detroit. Right. They also were very much like, oh, these are my these are my white brothers. Like that was a very conscious decision on his part to both show it and also resolve it within the film so that we felt good about everybody. You know, we felt we there was no tension. And the thing is, if if this movie was made in 1995, or 1985, but this is this movie was made just a couple of years ago, 2016, and that felt like a very strange, not not like not necessarily bad, but strange decision to not let some of that, to not preserve some of that racial tension throughout the movie and have it still in the room. Like if he had had a segregated courtroom at the end, that would have been a strong choice. Right. Right. And and also like the fact that the potentially exonerating testimony of the Japanese captain that that's kind of ignored by the you know the the judge or whatever when giving the sentence is interesting. You know, like it it's like they did they didn't care enough about his observed recollection of the of the battle to like or not the battle, but the attack to to like to exonerate Captain McVeigh in that scene. Like, like it's very easy to imagine that there was a racial component to that. Although I think that was part of the that was part of the plot uh, the plot line of the Navy's going to convict this guy no matter what, right? Because he's exonerated three or four times, guy. right? Yeah. So they're just fall guy. I I looked a little bit to try and find evidence that that was historically true that they had him testify and i it did say that they testify that he testified but i didn't find evidence that he appeared in court uh he did he, he, he did. was deposed by both sides i mean it wasn't like a surprise the way it's presented in the film but i think that can be forgiven from a dramatic standpoint um yeah and he became he he became like part of the I guess they say this at the end, right? He became part of the like the movement to exonerate McVeigh. Yeah. I thought he was a really interesting character in the film and they gave him a lot of screen time. Yeah. And his problems were made to be our problems, like the the way his crew treated him, his many failures to sink ships that he had the opportunity to sink. And the like misgivings that I mean they don't even talk about it outright but he clearly has misgivings about using the chitons yeah but i could not countenance the fact that he is introduced to us talking to his mysterious ancestors or ancestor who is appearing in ghost form behind him it was just like what is this well they explain that later when he says that he believes that the soul survives after death Mm. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) that's a great point though about technique though right storytelling technique is like you feel like this may be a movie that reveals people as ghostly apparitions throughout 
and yet you only get a single scene of that. Several characters get voiceovers at strange times in the film You that make you think that this may be a voiceover-driven film, and it is clearly not. Right, right. It's not even bookended with voiceover. No. It's It's sprinkled in for expediency. Yeah, right. Like, where are we, the viewer, where we're privy to voiceover, privy to see people talking to their ghostly ancestors. Like we're privy to all this stuff that if you're going to have it at some point in the film, you have to have it throughout the film because that's where we assume we are. Right. And if we're just like, if we're just in an overhead dolly shot for most of the film and then all of a sudden we're in people's inner lives. Yeah. You're like, why aren't we, when they're out there and the bobbing in the water with the sharks, why don't we hear their inner thoughts then? That, you know. Yeah, to introduce it and not continue it in any strategic way felt, it felt like things were missing throughout the film. I mean, that's like, it, it, made, it kind of reminded me in a weird way of Inglorious Bastards, where there's like a couple of moments of random voiceover in that film. But in that film, it feels like a commentary on the use of voiceover as much as it is an expediency. Like, it's a joke that there's, that suddenly mm-hmm. Sam Jackson is there to explain that old film stock was highly flammable. <laughs> oh, I wish we'd given a little exclamation point to that as we savaged Inglorious Bastards <laughs> so that we could have salvaged our review of the film, given Tarantino his smarty pants props. I don't remember either of you leaving any meat on that bone. <laughs> I think you were fairly complete. Do you think that the problem is all the problems in this film all arise from the script? Like if if the script had been different or focused on different things, does this turn out better? I mean, there's like bad special effects in it, but you can ignore those if if the movie's good, if the story's really good, right? There's enough wrong with the script that we're talking about a different movie. Yeah. All of the exposition we get about chitons and sharks in the beginning of the movie, like, does that make them scarier? You know, like when Tom Sizemore, like, is walking around the engineering section of the ship, you know, wiping his hands with a grease rag, telling everybody about how terrifying sharks are. (laughs) Like, it's just... It'd be, it'd be like if uh, in Titanic, the the captain had gone on a 10-minute jag about how terrifying icebergs are like boy (laughs) you seem to be really fixated on this one thing (laughs) well and also the whole chitin side story is all pointing at the courtroom scene where nick cage's decision to stop zigzagging was at least partly based on the idea that it was ineffective against chitons Now, my understanding was he stopped zigzagging because he was in fog and it was night. And he said, let's just get where we're going. And that is all resolved by the Japanese sub-captain saying whether he'd been zigzagging or not wouldn't have mattered because I was right up on him and I fired six torpedoes at him. So the whole chitin thing, immaterial. I mean, I never read an account of this whole sinking where chitons were ever mentioned. So... Uh it feels a little bit like a screenwriter finding this sort of tidbit 
working it into the story as an interesting detail that allows them to flesh out the humanity of the captain of the, the Japanese captain. Like it feels like a whole screenwriters, like a thing where as they bring the script into production, people go, wow, that's some historical shit that really, it's a failure to know what's interesting about the moment or the circumstance or the piece of technology they're depicting. Like to me, when they, when the first depiction of the chitin is of the guy who will operate it being ordered to get in it. And then later on, we see a cut to of him inside it briefly, but the thing that gives the chitin the heightened emotional energy is him being locked into it from the outside. We don't see that. Uh, we don't see the moment where the first chitin uh, pilot uh, misses the ship, and then we don't cut back into the boat once he realizes on his stopwatch that it's a miss. What does he do? What does he do? How long does he survive just floating upside down in this? We don't need to keep cutting back to him, but once the propeller fails and it's real that his mission is a failure... We need that scene. There's your nightmare. Doesn't he movie. say like he he died honorably though? Well, yeah, but he's just making. But how? He's just making excuses for himself. Does he pull a pin and blow up, blow himself up? Any number of things that yeah. we could probably look up to find out. Or does he just lay there until he runs out of air? I think I want to know that. I don't. I want to know that to feel something in a film that I so rarely felt something while watching. That That's scene I mean. made me hate this movie more than it, almost anything else because it's 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 a switcheroo which other movies have done successfully oh, it was a terrible right the but cross it, it cut makes... between training on the indianapolis and the real thing right but for some reason in this film it just makes you feel like you can't trust anything the movie is showing you from that moment that's forward. another example of giving us a an apparition or a voiceover well and the thing was i smelled that switcheroo I, like when you first see them go to battle stations and you see the sh the sub preparing the chitin you you go wait a minute why are they going to battle stations they can't see the sub they don't know the sub is there they're not saying submarine submarine battle stations he's just shouting battle stations into the air right and so there's a brief moment where you think is this movie that bad <laughs> and then you realize oh this is like a trick scene and now i have to sit and watch the whole thing unfold as though i don't know what the as i uh, you know i don't know that at the end someone's gonna say i see dead people um and it and it just feels like anybody fooled by it all the way to the end is gonna feel cheated Right. And I feel super cheated being forced to watch it. But there's a but all of that starts at the very beginning of the movie where the Indianapolis is out at sea. This is before it's been charged with its special mission. This is just establishing that the Indianapolis has been in the war. It's sustained damage before. It's a tough ship and a tough crew. And it's under attack by kamikaze pilots. And Nick Cage and his officers on the bridge are standing watching kamikaze pilots coming in and he is shouting fire fire <laughs> as though he's as though he's shooting his big guns at the beach of Iwo Jima 
a captain isn't going to shout fire and directing using clock directions. Yeah, as if the as if the people in the guns won't see them. <laughs> right, like every single every single anti aircraft gun and machine gun on that boat is firing wildly at anything it can find in the sky. Yeah, the big guns are not engaged. And the captain is not shouting fire. The captain has a helmet on and he is zigzagging his boat and doing everything he can. He is busy. Yeah. But that whole business, and, and it's a big part of the opening. Fire! Fire! We're supposed to feel like this guy is really in command, mm-hmm. but it's insensible. Yeah. And from that moment on, I was like, well, this is bad. <laughs> that the credits the credits are still rolling and oh, this is like bad. That's a that's, great question. That's an interesting moment. What 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 was the moment where you realized we were in in I mean I think we when all When did knew you that know it was, was a bad a, film? Yeah. Uh for me it was when they were hoisting the crate onto the ship and the only thing printed on the outside was the number of kilotons. Yeah. Is <laughs> the that right? yield the yield of the bomb was printed oh, I, on the outside I, of the bomb? I didn't see that. This is a secret <laughs> mission, guys. Oh well I was I said Maybe uh it's like ordering a sex toy. Like you want some anonymous packaging. <laughs> I said to the hydrologist next to me as I was watching this movie, uh well, like she's a graduate student, not a real hydrologist. I said, This is a secret mission. They're loading this giant crate. In the middle of the day, in the middle of the dock, it's got a number one inside a circle and fifteen kilotons. I did not even see that. I did not see the kilotons. I was so mad about the crate, I didn't even look at it closely enough to realize how bad it was. <laughs> was the thing that they like welded to the floor in the office the uranium? No idea what that was. I couldn't, and I couldn't stand that scene because these two guys are having a meeting in an office and there's a welder in there. <laughs> and I was like, there's not another room in the boat that they could have had this talk. It's a big boat, right? <laughs> yeah. They could have been standing on the stern talking about this. They could have talked about this a lot of places. But then when, w- when watching when, the crate be lowered into the hold. Yeah, right. But when Nick Cage says, does this have to do with the Manhattan Project? I was like, he wouldn't <laughs> have known about that. He would not have known about that. That is not a question he would have asked. Who is that for? When Mario Van Peebles is making this movie... It's for you. It's, it's for the viewer. It's for the viewer. It, but we... Ugh. Erg. Yeah. Could have gone to voiceover there. <laughs> they could have brought in a ghostly apparition. <laughs> the Admiral a Shinto could, priest? Could be like, I wish I could tell him about how this is the Manhattan Project. Right. His grandfather appears behind him. Don't <laughs> tell him about the bomb! <laughs> There's something in the water. It could be the plane we're looking for, sir. The scenes with the cigar-chomping politicians, the the decision-makers. Yeah. We get an establishing shot of a Harry Truman portrait that tilts down. The casting choices in this film were so peculiar to me that I wasn't sure if what we were seeing was a depiction of Harry Truman at a moment of decision. Was he ever in this movie? I don't think so. I just wanted to be sure I didn't miss him because they there is a suggestion at certain points that Truman is in the room for some of these. They decisions. couldn't get John Voight into the movie. But yeah, he was <laughs> if he was in these scenes, he was not subtitled as a character as some characters got the treatment of or uh so similar in look that we were made to believe that that was that character. That's another thing that we get in this movie sometimes, which is that scroll underneath saying Yeah. you know Dateline, 
Lebanon. You want that above the subtitle treatment. But those scenes, the smoky room, uh, the fat white dudes, those are also ripped from Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Also a really lame shortcut for trying to introduce this whole idea that there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of mistakes made by the Navy. Yeah. To it, to put them all into some nameless cigar chomper who's like, we're not going to let them off the hook. Like morally repugnant from their the first moment they arrive on screen. Oh my God. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is the repugnant guy. If we don't get this scene and yeah. we instead just get the courtroom scene where, and the realization that he's guilty, that's the punch in the gut that you want. Don't fucking foreshadow that here. Don't foreshadow it 30 minutes before, before the comeuppance. And where are the seven guys, the seven Navy guys that uh, that made sort of intermediary decisions yeah. that actually precipitated the problem? Like the, it wasn't just one radio operator. It was a whole bunch of guys with manifests who were like, oh, I don't see anything here. It's not a cigar chomping white guy in the middle of Washington, D.C. If... This film is going to give us a courtroom scene. Give us, like, give us the full Paths of Glory treatment. Like, really go into that. And then make us feel something for when McVeigh kills himself in the end. But it, that... His devastation is not really It's not pronounced at all. I was totally surprised by that moment. In you can't way, handle the truth. It felt like a fucking trick. Like, like, we never see his grief in the aftermath of his wife's death... We basically cross cut from the court to a a jump in time and then him holding his service weapon to his head and, and killing himself. His extremely much younger wife, as portrayed in the movie, which again felt not, felt like a thing from a movie from 1996 or 2016 even, but not a thing that would have been true then. A Navy captain would not be 59 years old or how old is Nicolas Cage now is he is he 65 <laughs> in in 2016 mm. but anyway his wife is like 28 oh boy how old is Nick Cage I think what we're talking about are some city miles here uh Nicolas Cage 55 years oh, old oh no kidding yeah he's kind of beat beat up isn't he well even 55 he wouldn't have had a 25 year old wife not in 19. 19- 44 that's not that's how things were done technology. yeah that's, that's not right. how it worked back then. that's a post no fault divorce decision <laughs> but then somehow <laughs> somewhere down somewhere down the line we get this scene where he's like and then i lost my beautiful wife and we're at we're given to ask how she was gonna outlive you my friend by a by a fair margin did she die of cancer hit by a car eaten by leopards sharks sharks got her <laughs> Just walking down the street one day. Land <laughs> shark. Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> Who is it? Land shark. <laughs> Candy Graham. Uh, she did die of cancer, guys. Oh. So good job. Oh. Yeah. The shark of biology. <laughs> guys, do you want to hear about something that distracted pedants on the internet? Like a. Uh, a pedantic moment coming up out of the water and pulling us under. Yeah, I mean this this movie actually gave Pearl Harbor a run for its money in the length of the of the goof section on IMDb. 
Um, but we've uh, we've identified uh, that we all really love train pedantry. Um, yeah. I, f- I found something that I think might, uh, if that knock train pedantry pedantry off the podium, you know, join it in a in a space of uh, special honor, uh, and that is tractor pedantry. Toward the end of the movie, a sailor comes home and finds his mother working on an International Har- Harvester Farmall 140 tractor. This type began production in 1958, and the movie tractor is a later generation model from the 1960s or early 1970s. The so correct true. equivalent tractor in the 1940s would have been an International Harvester Farmall A. Oh, I am so mad on behalf of that pedant, because that... <laughs> Train, that is the ultimate example of train pedantry. They got the wrong tractor. And that would have been so easy to get the Us right tractor. Us farmers in Napa Valley have access to early production models, you see? We're beta testing this, given our proximity to Silicon Valley. <laughs> my, my beef with that scene was that the mom was dressed head to toe in the full Rosie the Riveter outfit. He really was. <laughs> and it was like, not every woman on the home front was Rosie the Riveter. She couldn't hug her son because both of her arms were flexed. <laughs> her son goes up and under for that hug. <laughs> you know, my, my pedantry moment was some, some sailor insulted another sailor by calling him a tampon. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's find out when tampons were invented. Because I have a feeling that nobody, no, that that would not have happened. 1945, no sailor would have said, you tampon. Yeah. And so I went on a deep dive about the invention of tampons. Wow. Oh. Um, actually, was it, was it already available to you on r slash tampons? <laughs> I don't, I don't go on Reddit. I don't believe in it. I've, I've, I have uh, good job by you. A lot of my sanity now is pretending that Reddit doesn't exist, <laughs> but, uh, no, it turns out tampons, uh, are, uh, an ancient technology, but normally not used to control the menses, but instead used as weird birth control devices or, other kinds of uh, hygiene products, and it was only in the 19th century that people started to make cotton. Uh, I think the first ones were wrapped around sticks. It's a hell of a combination. And it was only, and Tampax only came into uh, into the play in, but it, it they did come into play right before the war. So the late 30s, uh, Tampax were invented, and so it is conceivable. That a very would, newfangled insult. Yeah, it would have been really ripped from the headlines that two sailors would have been like so keyed in to what was going on. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, though. Oh, that was made a, me so a mad. Wayne Gretzky quote. <laughs> that made me so mad. Why would why would a sailor be saying that? Oh, so many things that made me so mad. <laughs> I turned to my hydrologist graduate student friend. And shook my head ruefully at that quote. Is uh, is she going for a PhD or just a master's degree in hydrology? Oh, uh, she's skipping her master's and going straight to PhD. Wow. When you're in that program, she's do no you call right it now. getting your damn degree? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. You know, that stuff might play on, on Greatest Gen, <laughs> but there's a higher standard over here. <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> 
You know, John, we never insult your your other shows. Yeah, because on, my other shows it. are impeccable. Yeah, yeah, and your and your other co-host barely concealed contempt for us. <laughs> it's really nice. Everybody loves you guys. Come on. You're the, you're untrue. The, I only have to go home to realize that. <laughs> you you two guys are the best thing about this show. I'm the one that everybody gives one stars to. Wouldn't do without you. Yeah, I know, but that's because you finally have a foil. You finally have somebody that makes you look good. Hey, so we went around the horn and and shared the moment that we thought this film was bad. What do you think was the best part of this film? I'll go first okay. and give you guys a chance to think about it. That moment of PTSD where Nick Cage picks up the phone and then is pulled underwater out of oh, bed. That was effective. I thought that sequence was expertly done. I, it felt like a totally different film with how how great that was shot and cut together. It was really scary and well acted. I, I thought that was great. I, only, I had only wished that that had come earlier on in the film. Agreed. I wanted to call out where the sailors are all putting up the portraits of the men that were lost. Um, you know, when you see old time photos in films, very often there's really bad Photoshop in them. And I thought that the the portraits that they selected and like the way they stylized them to make them look like, you know, war era photography looked great. And, Agreed. uh, it, you know, I don't, like this art department missed a bunch of times, but I thought that was super well done. Did you see how they missed Natural Geography magazine? There's a magazine that washes down one of the decks in the ship as it's sinking, and it's Natural <laughs> Geography magazine, and it's got a shark on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and this is so emblematic of like Natural. Boy, that scene where the two sailors like walk up to Sizemore and one of them's got like a Playboy centerfold of a photo of a shark. Yeah, in, and he's in like, bold "Tell color. us about sharks," <laughs> and he keeps he keeps holding it up like a visual aid for the rest of the scene. I thought I I almost felt like now the movie pivots and is a comedy. Right, <laughs> it was so insane. Take that all out and surprise the viewer who isn't familiar with this story. Get in the water before realizing that there are sharks there. Right. Right. All of this buildup just ruins it. Yeah. I don't want to keep going back to the PBY, and I am <laughs> definitely not going to have the PBY be my guy, although I, <laughs> I feel like I could have. But that's the one scene in the movie that I felt like, wow, we're making a movie here. Because, you know, we had a rakish PBY pilot that was disobeying orders, and... It was historically true and it was a really, it was a real plane. And there was a brief moment where you, you did feel like we're being rescued. Although because, because we didn't spend enough time in the water feeling truly harrowed, even the rescue felt a little bit like a anticlimax. And especially as you're saying, as soon as the plane landed, I actually watched for it. I was like, okay, now that the plane has landed, are we going to have, is the is are the violins going to swell and then we're going to cut to after the war? Sting can anticlimax to make himself last longer, right? <laughs> I'm so disappointed in you. Because I'm wrong about his 
sexual technology? <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> Honestly, I'm walking myself through the entire movie and there just wasn't a moment that I felt like I was I was not transported at any point. So there was although the although the moment I was taken out of the film was early. I mean even even inside the Japanese submarine which was maybe the most interesting place in the movie. You got a feeling of the that crew and their internal dynamics. You got a real feeling of the claustrophobia of that submarine. Um, even with the Kaiton subplot that felt sort of tacked on, even with the bad digital effects. I mean, Hunt for Red October famously had bad submarine effects and they looked better than the submarine effects in this movie. Well, you don't care because so Hunt for Red October is a good movie, right. you know? But, I mean, you if you can have submarine effects hunt for Red October level whenever that movie was made, 1960. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, sounds about right. Um, but, but even that, because it felt so much like a thing that we've seen dating all the way back to, I mean, what was the first submarine movie we've watched that had uh, where the Japanese crew was humanized? It was in the 50s. So we are no longer amazed at watching a movie where you get inside the you get inside the enemy sub and learn that they're just people too. And I guess realizing that he Japanese was Japanese sub commanders, they're just like us. Yeah. Except for they can talk to their dead ancestors. Right. We can't because we are not Shintos. Uh, but do the Japanese subcommanders love their children too? We don't. We don't actually. They didn't address that in this movie, so I guess we can't really know. Oh, except they did. He was like, "Let me see the picture of your family." Uh, oh yeah, yeah and then great. it was like, "Oh, cute picture, great photo." Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't want to send you to your death. That photo was not actually a great choice from a art direction standpoint, though, because like. You probably she wouldn't, wouldn't have, have been a off like that. Yeah, yeah. You would have like a staged photograph where they're looking at the camera, right? Yeah, the whole the whole advent of like like snapshot photography, I think, was a after war thing. Fill that opening, Jackson. Are we ready to review? I feel like your comments are are veering dangerously into review territory. I don't want to review it. We have to review it. We review all of these films, John. And we don't compare them to one another, I understand. We don't, because each movie gets its own custom review designed by me based on an object that catches my eye in the film. For USS Indianapolis, that object catches my eye about 45 minutes into the film. I stopped the film when the Indianapolis sank just to see where we were in the timeline of the film. The film is two hours and 10 minutes. The sinking happens at 40 minutes. And I was like, holy shit, we are going to be in the water for so long. How are they going to tell this story? How are they going to impress upon us how stressful it is, how bored one might be, uh, the mania that one feels from being deprived of fresh water and food for that long? Unfortunately, you don't get any of those feelings at all. You just get people getting eaten by sharks and the terror of watching that happen in front of you. 
but there's one moment where you see the boredom and it is a guy carving a keyboard into the stuffing of his life raft complete with the white keys and the black keys <laughs> and he starts to play it along with the non-diegetic movie music that plays over and in a film filled with weird storytelling technologies and conceits and inspirations from other films that it steals from I thought that that was one of the strangest choices that it makes. To steal from Magnolia? Yeah. You kind of thought he was going to start singing an Amy Mann song at you? I love Magnolia, (laughs) and I love that part of Magnolia. So, there. But, like, the the piano doesn't look right. It doesn't sound right. I mean, you're a (laughs) piano player, John. I'm sure you can tell that what he's playing on his fake keyboard isn't matching up with the, the sound that we're hearing. Well, but better than I expected... But uh, it must frustrate a person who knows how to play piano to see how that piano is played. And that is the rating system for this film. The fake life raft piano. Because... I just want to say I am shocked that that's the rating system, given the fact that there's a scene in this movie where Nicolas Cage is told he's not going to have an escort and the camera pulls back through a skeleton of a shark mouth. (laughs) I couldn't make a film paper comparison between the shark mouth and and my comments. I would have thought it was the completely unexplained box that was welded to the floor of the... And then at the end, they took it off, and it was something that... I'll, I'll bring you behind the pot a little bit. It was almost Natutal Geography Magazine. Right. It was almost the severed leg that McWhorter <laughs> holds to his chest. <laughs> the severed leg that gets shot with morphine, like, before being revealed that, oh, yeah, like, there's no helping that leg. Well, and and in all the time, nobody makes him throw it overboard. Like, dude, don't hold on to the leg. It's starting to. All of that stuff with Sizemore and the morphine was like, I thought had real pathos because like his drug problems are fairly well known. (laughs) And like the feeling of being injected with morphine and having Tom Sizemore embody that feeling on screen felt like overly intimate it felt like i was seeing something i wasn't supposed to see and so the rating scale are these fake piano keys wow so so an individual key is one is one unit that's what we're going for so uh i'm i'm going to doubt that this film achieves a chord with either of us right the things that we disliked about the film are the things that i personally disliked i think we have been fairly detailed in our in our savagery of it more than anything it just makes me sad at what a missed opportunity this is you know sometimes studios buy a script and then they sit on it because they're not ready to make it for uh, technological reasons or an inability to cast someone that they would prefer be the star Um, you see this all the time and I wish that this script had been purchased by a more dutiful caretaker of its story. Someone who could give it to one of our top six film directors who could give it to 
uh, an actor of pedigree or a group of actors of pedigree, because this is such a great story that is so deserving of a film well made. And this just isn't. And like the way we approach watching a film really defines whether or not it works for us. And I, I sh- I'm sure you heard it in my voice at the end of the last episode, like how much, how excited I got to watch this film, knowing what we knew the story to be, accepting that Nick Cage would be in it and Mario Van Peebles would be directing. I got myself up for it. That was not a good idea to do. <laughs> there are a number of documentaries that I would recommend people watch about this story. And uh, it inspired me to start watching those after I finished this film. I think in that way, it's good. I'm glad, I'm glad more people will know about this story because this film was made. But it's tragic that a film about this story was made in this way. I'm going to uh, I'm going to give this one fake piano key, and it really hurts me to do that. Ding, boom. <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, like watch a documentary, don't watch this movie is the is the strong recommendation here, or just you know read read about the history of it. Yeah. Um, watch Jaws. Watch Jaws. I think I'm going to come come in there and uh, and agree with you that it's it is a single foam key played with three fingers out of sync to the music. <laughs> you guys remember when I spent ten days in jail in Boulder, Colorado? I love that story. Yeah, sure. it's a great story. Right? Rolling cigs for all the boys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, one of the things that they didn't give us in Boulder jail was any kind of game board game. And so I made a chess set out of paper. I took a piece of notebook paper, I divided it up, and then I made little chess pieces out of paper. They wouldn't give us any scissors, so I had to kind of rip them. Little ripped chess pieces. So as this guy was carving his piano out of the foam of his raft, I could really identify with the desire to give yourself something, anything to do. Um, of course, I designed this chess set, and uh, one of my cellmates was a, um, a guy from Mexico who was busted for boosting cars, and he schooled me every single game we played, just just laid waste to me <laughs> for a week and a half uh, until I regretted having made that chess set. <laughs> What I liked about that scene, the, the, the piano scene, was that you, for a while, felt like maybe these guys are going crazy. And maybe he's going to carve his raft up until he sinks and dies. That was one of only a few interesting moments in the whole film. And so I'm going to concur with one B-flat eighth note with no sustain. Plink. <laughs> Plink. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great detail. <laughs> you always put a hat on my review hat. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have a better time choosing a guy 
No shortage of total guys in this episode. A lot of guys. And a couple of girls. Ben, who's your guy? It is Sanchez, the uh, the guy that carves the the raft. Not for that Whoa. moment, but for uh, there's a moment where he's um, I think he's like delivering coffee to somebody, and uh, and that marine is standing there, and he just kind of casually is like, "Why'd you join up?" And the marine just looks at him and says, "To kill people." <laughs> His reaction was like a like a perfect moment. Like he understood. Exactly who his character was and how he would react to that. I I laughed out loud because it was funny, and uh, I felt like in a movie with so few genuinely human moments, I really appreciated that he was there to do that. So uh, Jose Julian is the actor's name, and uh, I really appreciated his presence in this movie. He's my guy. Good guy. Yeah, my guy was maybe somewhat predictable. It was the guy with glasses who was good at gambling and full of sass. Alvin. Alvin. Now, he's there were a couple of guys with glasses. Oh, Alvin's the guy with the ring. Is this well, is this your guy? So this is this was confusing to me, right? There was the guy with the ring, then there was the guy that was good at gambling. They were different guys. Sometimes it was hard to tell yeah. which guy they were yeah. the kid that was that Nicholas Cage found when he was when he first went in the water that kid was wearing glasses was that Alvin no he's a non-bobber though Alvin survives yeah Alvin has that uh, that moment at the end where he gives the ring back right well but that was the different guy I'm not talking about and then gets all judgy about it Come yeah, on, Alvin, right. give well, him a break. But there was the, there were these two guys because the gambling guy is different. So I'm not picking Alvin the ring guy. Okay. I'm picking gambling dude mm. who's friends with all the black guys, mm-hmm. right? Like he because right. he's got and I think the implication was that he was a Jewish guy, mm-hmm. although we never see any actual. You know the trope of a World War II movie is there's always some guy named Epstein. We never yeah. see foreskin in this film. <laughs> Gods. Anyway, that guy, you know, because because all of the tropes are there, right? The one white guy that can hang with the black guys, the guy that's got some street smarts and some, and he likes to play dice. Right. Definitely all part of that, like the the Jewish guy on the boat tropes. Did the snake eyes cause? That's what the it ship was. To sink? Yeah, he rolled the wrong dice, and yeah. that was if he had rolled seven, then the torpedoes would have missed. Ooh! Don't blood libel the Jewish guy. <laughs> He was there underneath the, in the hold making blood matzo. <laughs> no, he was just the guy that. Is that, a, is that New England matzo or? Uh, <laughs> why why wasn't red? our rating system the, the, the guy that carves a menorah out of his raft? <laughs> he was the trope that I always like. Long Island matzo is the red matzo, right? You're the worst. <laughs> uh, my guy has. A line of dialogue in the movie that also doubles as the review. <laughs> Admiral Parnell comes in and, and gives the bad news to McVeigh in his living room. He's like, look, uh, you're going to be court-martialed. It's not going to be great. Can you maybe get your wife out of here to make us some tea so we can talk? And then as soon as she leaves, Parnell like cozies up to McVeigh, Sotovoce, and he's like, 
this stinks. <laughs> <laughs> like the moment he like drops rank a little bit right. and like calls it for what it is. This stinks. Admiral Parnell, played by James Remar, who is a great that guy, an actor of a fairly colorful career, an actor with some personal problems in his past, but is great in this movie, great in small doses, has that uh, admiral gravitas that I really enjoyed from him, and just a great fucking voice. He's, he does a lot of voice acting, too, and uh, really liked him in this film. So he's my guy. Nice. I don't want to let this episode end without talking about the uh, the post-film, you know, where everybody ended up role. Yeah. They give a little a little bit of history, and then they do... It's, it's like it can't decide what kind of end it wants, because it also is cutting in some interviews with some actual survivors of the Indianapolis, but it only two. cut in only parts... Two. Yeah, it only cut in two two interviews, and it seems to just be making the case that sharks are bad. Like, that is, like, the entire thrust of those two interviews. Yeah, one of the guys is like, I, I hate sharks. I yeah. hated sharks then, and I still hate them now. I hate sharks to this day, and it was, like, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I I would not have expected was that. that really was that the crunch. thing that, like... Like when we're walking out of the fil- of of the theater, having seen this this masterpiece, it seems like Mario Van Peebles wants our our takeaway to be fuck sharks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, it, that, when that guy said that, I was like, MVP. wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then we need to find out if we're going to watch a better movie next week. Oh yeah, that's Fire. a good point. Uh, a couple of years ago in Hawaii, I was snorkeling and I came face to face with a black tip shark. Whoa. But he was only, he was about as long as Adam, even less threatening. He did not. <laughs> the, the difference between me and the shark is the shark is hairier. <laughs> <laughs> did you poke him in the eye, John? The shark's eyes are slightly less dead than yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's the here's the dice. Oh shit! I knocked over my Star Wars VHS tape. <laughs> here we oh yeah, go. thanks to Emily for sending in some uh, some great gifts. Yeah, thanks Emily. Those are weird gifts. <laughs> I liked mine. I'll never yeah, misidentify well, you, an aircraft again. Yours are good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my C seventeen jacket. I'm, I might wear it today. <laughs> Except it smells like fabric softener. Oh. Wash it. Okay, here we go. It lands on number six. Ooh, number six. This is a hundred-sided die, so it has a little period at the base of the six, so we know it's not a nine. Well, this is a film from 1990, directed by Michael Caton Jones, uh, set in World War II. It's uh, about uh, the crew of a B-17, Memphis Belle. Is this good? Is this a good movie? Yeah. I never saw it. I remember it being good. Stars Matthew Modine and Eric Stoltz. Come on. So we have not had... This is only our second World War II movie. We're not at our limit, are we? No, we are not. I remember watching this film a lot as a kid. Uh, only available in standard def, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, oh, That's so good, actually. This this uh, last Sharknado movie was in high def, <laughs> and it really brought the... Too the, much def. It really brought the soap opera out of it. Yeah, that's true. You don't uh, want death. Well, that'll be uh, that'll be our film next week. Looking forward to it. 
Uh, thanks, f- everyone, for listening. We'll leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick, and it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Feel like supporting the show? Then head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate and show your love, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire whenever you are using social media and talking about this show. Thanks. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.